started here. I'll open with prayer this morning as we dive in. Let's do pray as you come in. Father God, we do thank you as we gather this morning. Just the ability to gather as your people to worship you every single Sunday and even as we get into the rhythm of studying different topics, Lord, we do praise you uh, just that you have left us with your word, that we get to study doctrine, that we get to think through these things as a church with one another. Lord, we pray that this morning we would be uh, just by, by the studying of your word, thinking about the doctrine of scripture, Lord, would you encourage our hearts, would you um, convince our hearts of the necessity and sufficiency of Scripture and also the beauty of Scripture that we have been given as a gift. So, Lord, we do praise you this morning. Would you keep us humble as we study your word? Lord, what, let us always be willing to be changed and shaped and formed as we come back to these things anew. So, Lord, we, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Glad to see you guys here. Um, as we jump in this morning, just a quick reminder on just kind of where we're heading. And so we're going to be looking at some doctrines within the church, some of the substantial doctrines that we would kind of hold to uh, within the Christian faith. And so we're not going to be able to hit every single major doctrine, but we're going to do our best to kind of hit some primary ones. And so this is kind of just a general study through some some big doctrines in Scripture. And so this is just a chance for us to just kind of dig our teeth into it a little bit to see what the church has believed. What do we hold to, especially in the face of a world that is struggling to understand what they believe. We as the church don't have to do that. We can go back to these things and hold on to them and grab hold of them, memorize them, learn them, come to Scripture, evaluate them, and learn them for ourselves. So this morning we'll be looking at the doctrine of Scripture. And so this is just our second week into this, and we'll continue on from there through the doctrine of God and some other major doctrines. And so uh, if you don't have uh, what we went through last week, that'll be in the um, just that fellowship hall by the bookstore. There's a rack that has all the previous Sunday schools. So there's a schedule in that first week that will kind of walk you through what we're looking at. And so you can look at different doctrines ahead or study along with us as we're looking at these things. And there's several good books that I'd be happy to point you to that you can study on your own to think through these things. Um, and so the ESV Study Bible is a fantastic place to start. It has some doctrines in the back of it that just gives you an introduction to these topics, a good place to at least get you in the right um, area. And these are not necessarily lesser documents when you get into the back of the ESV Study Bible. These are uh, top-level theologians who are writing these uh, articles in there. And so you're really just getting something that's synthesized from uh, kind of their major works down to something that's very tangible and accessible. And so it definitely gets you kind of in the right category, and then you go study maybe a systematic theology or a, doc, a book on doctrine, um, and you'll just get more and more of what's there. So, uh, yes, grab something like that. Study along with these as you're thinking about uh, the doctrine of Scripture. I'll give you a few things at the end of just our study today just to kind of head back into what are we uh, looking at. So... Uh, if you do not have a handout, there's a couple more up here. Um, there's a couple quotes I'll just direct you to as we think about Scripture and the doctrine of Scripture. Uh, John Calvin, just as he thinks about, this is one of the 
the, one of uh, the major figures of the Reformed faith that many times we neglect and will pass over. But if you go back and read John Calvin on Scripture, he is uh, one of the best. He takes probably a little more energy than some of the more modern guys like Wayne Grudem. But I would say it's worth any effort you put into John Calvin um, because he is, he is extremely uh, well thought out and he understands Scripture extremely well. Um, and one of the things he says is, in order that true religion may shine upon us, we ought to hold that it must take its beginning from heavenly doctrine, and that no one can get even the slightest taste of right and sound doctrine unless he be a pupil of Scripture. And it is entirely true that we have to come back and see Scripture with that emphasis and with that uh, level of importance as John Calvin is talking about here, that if we're to understand right doctrine, we have to come back to a right understanding of Scripture, scripture again and again. Uh, R.C. Sproul uh, does a lot of work in Scripture. One of the things you pick up from R.C. Sproul as he studied and he preached was he loved the Word of God. He absolutely loved the Word of God. And this was, this was evident in his preaching and his teaching. And he uh, would write many books just on this and defending it uh, just in major councils throughout history, uh, just in our American history very recently. Um, one of the things... A couple things he says that I think he just kind of gets well, just kind of the thrust and the emphasis of Scripture when we approach the Bible, as he says this. He says, when there's something in the Word that I don't like, the problem is not with the Word of God, it's with me. And this is probably a good reminder, and it's not something we often think in our current culture and day and age, but he is willing to say, and if you've ever heard him, you know he is not willing to back down on many things, but he is willing to back down on his own personal opinion when it comes in f- the face with Scripture. One of the things he says, um, you can't love Jesus and not love his word. And this has often been something I've heard within culture is to say, I just want to love Jesus. I don't want to get caught up in all this doctrine stuff. And R.C. Sproul would say, that's not really possible. That's not really possible. Uh, And the last thing, and if you've heard him, this is kind of, (laughs) uh, he says things well like this. He says, I'll retire when they pry my cold, dead fingers off my Bible. (laughs) So sensitive and kind as he (laughs) thinks about uh, the way he engages the Bible. Uh, One last one just to think about here that... um, Paul Tripp, an author, one of the guys who's really prominent in the counseling ministry, but he's also a pastor. Um, and this is from a book uh, that I recommended to many of you, Do You Believe? And this is kind of an intro to doctrine and a very practical way to engage with it. One of the things he says in there that I thought was extremely helpful and well thought out is this. He says, I have written more than 20 books on a variety of topics, but none would have been written apart from the gift of God's word to me. If it were not for Scripture, I would have no wisdom of any worth to share. And if I were so bold as to attempt to write something, I would have no confidence in the truthfulness and helpfulness of what I wrote. If it were not for God's Word. If it were not for God's Word. And there is certainly an attitude there that we really need to adopt as believers, as the church. 
and to hold on to, to recognize that there are many, many things that we can say and hold to, and yet this is really our only confidence, really squarely rests upon God, God's Word, the movement of God, the action of God, and so there is something really rich for us there. Uh, even as we enter in to study about this doctrine of Scripture, when you think about Scripture, um, yeah, do you come from a place that has, I mean, similar to doctrine, have you come from a place that Scripture is really a sweet thing, or it has been kind of a difficult thing to get your mind around, difficult thing to engage, to come to, or how have you maybe even grown in your appreciation and love of Scripture as you think about this? Is this a dry, dead topic, or a, something is like, man, I absolutely have grown to love this. I'm just asking, because my, my engagement with it has certainly changed over the years and from season to season. Yeah, any thoughts as you think about the doctrine of Scripture? Noah. Mm. There's something there you're just kind of looking for, and then you kind of put it off to the side. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Scripture existing as an authority then was something that was kind of pushed away. Like it can be something that's good for me as an in as so far as it helps me, but not so far as it corrects me. So to that R.C. Sproul quote there. Yeah. Any other thoughts as you guys have engaged with thought about scripture? Yeah, Janet. Yeah, kind of a sense of stability just around the word of like when everything else kind of seems to move, that kind of held, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that one's a little tough. Yeah. yeah. Right, right. She was just saying, like, the more that I read scripture, like, actually read it, the more that I was able to see, like, mm. man, this, this seems the right thing for me. Mm. Regardless of what I'm like. Yeah. It had just a truthfulness to it just yeah. as you read it. Yeah. Any others? Yeah. Right. 
<laughs> it gets awkward. <laughs> mm-hmm. To interpret it, yeah. 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 Even when we get off, we should be able to come back and say, this book is primary. And in practice, sometimes we do uh, allow practices to carry, but yeah. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, and there is something about the the word you learn and memorize. And it, there's some importance to which translation you regularly read then. But like I remember, I grew up when the NIV was very, very popular in churches. The ESV has kind of grown in prominence. But I mean, most of the scriptures I read, memorized as a kid were NIV. And so even as we're doing discipleship, sometimes I'm having to like read, rework. I'm like, this sounds familiar, vaguely. And then I see in the NIV, I'm like, ah, there it is. I can settle in. <laughs> yeah. Any other thoughts? Just as, yeah. Right. Yeah. we thought about last week, just the, the backdrop of our society and the, the secular modern mentalities or postmodern mentalities um, really do kind of push away from like, how can you speak, especially postmodernism, how can you speak that authoritatively? And God can, <laughs> uh, but you know, it does, it feels very, very odd. Similar to what, I mean, Jesus would say to the Pharisees, for me who grew up in the church, this resonates, but, uh, you know, don't put this heavy, heavy yoke and weight of just legalism. And oftentimes scripture can carry that if we're not careful to say the beauty of the law and the goodness is, you know, David talks about it as sweeter than honey, uh, really is true, but it can often be put on in a different way. Yeah. Any others as we, yeah, Kevin.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, there's a, um, a like a richness and a fullness to Scripture as we think about it. That uh, the more you dig into it, the more it should actually gain in, in clarity. And the more you hear good teaching, it should gain in clarity. Uh, just about the, I mean, it doesn't mean you know everything about it. In fact, you should be able to study Scripture, my guess is, probably through all eternity and still see the beauty and the marvel of everything God has done. And yet, there's a clarity about it. So that's pretty unusual to find that level of complexity and clarity both there. Um, So as we move into just this doctrine of Scripture, one of the things you'll recognize is that uh, there is some level of we have to put doctrine down. We study God's Word, this practice of theology, and then we do the bold thing of like, let us write doctrine. (laughs) You know, like how dare you write something that bold and uh, forthright. And the church has done this just over the years in confessional documents and statements. And one of the things that we have done as a church is we have doctrines written out that we say this is what we believe. Uh, similar to what like, you know, the church has done from early ages, when different te- teachings would emerge through the church that were against what Jesus would say, they would, they would consolidate their teaching and say, we believe as the church, what is orthodox teaching about Jesus? What is good doctrine, sound doctrine, when we think about the things God has said? And so as the church, we still tend to do this. We say, we believe about the scriptures. What do we believe about the scriptures? And this becomes incredibly important. As you get into different churches you recognize, and other just places, there are certain views about the Bible. Many will view the Bible as, this is a really neat historical book. This is a really helpful narrative, or this is really beautiful in the way that the poetry plays out. There's not many who disregard the uniqueness of the Bible, um, just as a historical document. And so there's certain beliefs that we hold to that we say, what do we believe? Church, what do we believe? And so GCF actually has a doctrinal statement. Um, I believe you guys have it on your um, handouts. Do you guys have that on your handouts? Does someone want to read that just as we enter in here? Nice and loud. Go ahead, Travis. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the things that um, 
that we hold to as a church. And if you go onto our website and you look at this, you go to our membership class, you'll see that this is part of a doctrinal statement that we say we believe these things. And this is for elders, this is for deacons, this is for those who are in leadership in our church. So we say, if you are going to be in leadership, you hold to this. You will submit under this. This is something that you agree with uh, other members of the church and other leaders of the church, that this is what I believe about the Bible. So that is, I mean, that comes in conflict with what we even looked at about doctrine last week, that some people don't even have a problem with something like this being written. Like that, that's a fine statement. Just don't put it on me. (laughs) So we are saying I'm willingly coming under this with others and saying I believe this is a good and right teaching. And so there's kind of a humility there. And you hear the thrust of it. This is, I'm coming under this view of Scripture that's actually based on Scripture itself, the authority of God's Word itself. So pretty unique in that sense. Uh, There's some other major confessional statements that you should at least be aware of, that we are aware of in the church, and that we, um, some of them will hold to, and some of them we at least say that if we are going to go in opposition to these, you have to think pretty long and hard about that uh, decision to go against these, because it is within kind of the orthodox history of the church to say this is how faithful believers have interpreted Scripture for a very long time. So the Westminster Confession of Faith would be one of these documents. And if you get into the confession itself, which we might, if we have time, we'll look at just kind of the way it formulates it a little later. Uh, There's ten statements that they make, and they're all backed by Scripture. And this was done by just a a massive number of men over uh, several years, where they're thinking through these things very, very carefully, saying, what do we believe in response to Catholicism, uh, primarily identifying? What is our doctrinal position here? And this has stood the test of time. And it has been a document that many churches just subscribe to uh, in its entirety. And you take some exceptions to it. But this is a very robust document that you should read, know, sometimes even memorize the catechism questions associated with this. Uh, The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. This is in the 70s. And this was coming out of the presence of liberalism coming into America. So R.C. Sproul and a number of other men uh, were gathered together to basically respond to some of these things coming out in the PCA and different uh, mainline denominations that they were starting to recognize in Princeton and all that. And they're basically saying, what do we believe about inerrancy? This became the fight of their day to say, what do we believe about Scripture? And so they had to really define this very carefully. And so uh, a book we'll look at a little bit here is based on this. This is kind of an interpretation of the Chicago statements on inerrancy and hermeneutics and application, but primarily inerrancy was their focus. And so this is kind of a commentary on this by a couple of the main figures in those uh, committees, R.C. Sproul and Norman Giesler. And so there is um, just a lot to go into that and to see what they were after, see what they were working at. And it takes some work to get into it, but once you get into it, you really start to see uh, just the richness of the work that they did. Uh, and oftentimes we kind of forget about it because this is, it, it feels like it's not the, the front-running fight of our day in the church, but this is still probably one of the big fights of our day to say, where do you find authority? And it's not maybe focused as squarely on Scripture at times, but it is still there. Um, and so if we were to state... I know, obviously, many of these doctrinal statements, when you get into Scripture, 
they're, they're defining a system of doctrine. So doctrine of Scripture, like Westminster, places it in, under ten statements. So, you know, you look at this doctrine, doctrinal statement on Scripture, and there's a whole lot being said about Scripture. But on a very basic level, you have this as a blank there, what do we believe about the Bible? We believe primarily that the Bible is the written word of God. You should have heard that within our belief. And if we state that, this is the written word of God. There's a whole lot that that means for us that we'll start to unpack a little bit. But this is primarily the written word of God. And, it's, and you can probably already feel the, the tension. You're like, ah, oh, I want to nuance that. I was like, well, this is part of the practice of doctrine and theology to say, is it right to say that the Bible is God's word? And you, then you do the practice of theology, and then you come to a statement, and you say, I do believe that this is God's word. At a very basic doctrinal statement, you go to a child who's been growing up in the church, and you say, what is this? They say, that's the word of God. That's doctrine. And we've come to a very basic doctrine that we can stand on. And someone else would come in and say, that's not God's word. That's just a bunch of books and history and different things. And your child's going to say, this is God's word. <laughs> and they are standing on a doctrinal truth that is very simple and very basic. So as we get into the word of God, how do we receive it? So kind of unpacking this doctrinal statement. The word of God is primarily revealed to us. And so this is kind of moving along in your outline. It is something that comes through God's revelation. In every other study of science, you kind of sit in this um, place where we are kind of the scientists, the experts of the field. And in theology, it's kind of unique because you are the created being. And so from this position of being one of God's created beings, saved by God, a recipient of grace, under the authority and rule of God, God has been pleased to reveal certain things about himself. And it's from this position that you receive theology, open-handedly saying, Lord, what would you teach me about yourself? Very, very different than a science experiment where you are looking over a microscope at this field of study in which you are the master, so to speak. You're actually the the recipient. So very unique in that sense when we even get into the study of doctrine in general and looking at these things, it's like we state them absolutely, but they were given to you. So you are in a sense uh, kind of an ambassador of that, holding on to it. You have this responsibility to carry it forward rightly. And so when we think of where do we find truth direction, it is as God has given it to you, kind of open-handedly. He says, these are the things I want you to know about my character, my person, my being, my action, my relationship with you, all of these things. So two big categories of God's revelation, God's revealing of himself. Uh, these are kind of classical theological categories of God's revelation. I think these are on your handout. Uh, those who've probably looked at theology would know these. Any thoughts on two categories you might put God's revelation in? Yeah, natural theology, which would sometimes be called kind of this general revelation, right? Looking out at uh, the creation of all that God has done. So you look at the, the skies, you look at the mountains, you look at the beauty that God has made, even human beings and everything that there is. And like scientists are actually like students of theology in some sense, that they're just studying God's natural 
revelation, natural theology, um, general revelation. And so scripture says that even the Gentiles are without excuse, us Gentiles, <laughs> most of us, I'm assuming we're all Gentiles, but there's, you know, we, we are without excuse because of general revelation. Like you see the beauty and the mystery and the majesty of what God has done by the works of his hands. He spoke and all this came to be. Pretty unique in that sense. Uh, second category, beyond general revelation, spoken or might be termed special revelation when we're thinking of the revelation of God given to us, especially as it's focused down in Scripture for a very specific purpose. Like we said, doctrine is kind of aimed somewhere. All these doctrines kind of are emphasized through Scripture to say what is the pinnacle well, many of us would say, well, obviously the Gospels and Jesus Christ. You're like, yes, absolutely. Well done. Jesus is the answer here. It kind of focuses us in on the redemptive purposes of God's revelation to say, this is what I will do for you. God would often speak this way to us. So special revelation is God giving us something about himself um, and about his world and about everything that he has done for us. And so, uh, as we kind of move into these, um, one of the things that we, that we see about God and his revelation, um, that there is something very specific, we believe, that can be different than kind of the, the watching world. Um, in liberal theology that emerged in Germany, uh, Rudolf Bultmann was kind of a major figure who would have kind of been on the other side of what they were doing uh, in the Chicago statements and kind of one of the movers on the other side. And one of the things that he would have stated and one of his big uh, pushes was let's demythologize the Bible. Let's take out um, kind of the supernatural, so to speak, uh, and make it, make it make a little more sense. And so one of the things he would say is as you have the Bible, there are specific things that you can see, and maybe God has given you certain revelation, but it's for no specific purpose. He says, it's up to you to kind of decide what you think it means. You can decide for yourself, and you hear this kind of language, like uh, in our culture still today, that you decide for yourself what you think you want it to mean. And so this is very different than what we believe about the Bible, as you could probably Imagine as you start to get into studying theology, God has acted, certainly. God has spoken in certain ways, but it is not just for you to figure out. Um, I don't know if many of you have studied poetry, but I found it fairly infuriating to study poetry when I was in college. And I, it was like a general ed requirement in my undergrad. And a bunch of me and my friends were like, oh, this will be fun. Let's sign up for this. It was not fun. It was, it was like murder for my soul. And I know it's supposed to be beautiful, but like you're sitting in this class and the teacher's like telling you, read this and let's just figure out what you think the author meant. And my engineering, I didn't know I was an engineering mind at this point, but I turned into an engineer. I'm sitting there like, well, why don't you just like go ask history or like look up what they meant this thing to know. And like, no, we don't like want to look at their background, their history, their story. Don't look at anything. Just what do you see the word saying? And I'm like, this is nonsense. They certainly meant this to mean something. They wrote this in, like, he's obviously thinking about some girl or something like that. And, and it was just, it was completely ludicrous to me that there was like, 
there's nothing behind this. You just figure out what you think you want it to mean for you. I was like, oh, man, this is brutal. <laughs> Get me into science or physics, something that has some tangible weight. Anyway, it, poetry is beautiful, but it, that was frustra- it was a frustrating experience. But as we think about God and Rudolf Bultmann, that's a little bit kind of what he's saying. To say, like, you just look at the world, look at what God has said, and you decide what you think God is saying. And God is not just saying whatever you think he wants you to say. He's actually saying something. God acts and he tells us what it means. God acts and he shows us what it means. When we think about the doctrine of Christ and scripture and the cross, we think of like, you could look at the cross and what do you think um, many who are watching, they could say certain things about him. They would say, well, that's, you know, Especially those in that curtain day and age, they'd be looking at him and say, well, he's opposed to the Roman government. Like, this guy was a rebel rouser. Like, he was like some passionate Jew. I don't know who this guy was, but clearly he got on the wrong side of someone, and it didn't turn out so well for him. Like, if you're just watching. And yet, Scripture doesn't leave you there just to make sense of, like, well, he was a good moral prophet. But Scripture actually tells you, like, what that moment meant So it says very clearly what the cross means. So opposed to what Rudolf Bultmann is saying, you just watch how God reveals things and you just make sense of it yourself. Scripture actually goes into that moment in history. God has entered in, the word with us, God entering in with us. He's entering in and all of a sudden you see God manifested in a specific way and he's explaining it at the same time saying, this is what I mean at this point in history. This is the salvation and the redemption of all the world in a moment. Jesus' blood is poured out for your sins. Now, you wouldn't pick that up just by watching what was going on, but Scripture tells you that. It reveals it to you. God has revealed it to you. And there is something very specific about the doctrine of Scripture to say, There is God's action, God's revealing of himself, and even some historical things that happened. But there is also a very specific way in which he teaches us what these moments mean. Something very unique about Scripture and God's revelation. Do you have something? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, yeah. No, there is a, even when you come to just Scripture itself, like there are moments in which there's an appeal to other Scriptures or we can look at other Scriptures and find more clarity. It doesn't always happen. Sometimes, like, you just still don't know what God means by it. But, God gives you everything you need uh, to understand, and he will reveal it to us. And there's, I mean, this is not a dead document. God is living through it. There's the spirit that is working through it. There is uh, other believers that help us in these things. So there's, there's a very real nature to the things we study. And that's, I mean, that is obviously like you believe that. <laughs> but I also experienced it and, and hold to it. Um, and so even as we... Um, think of the doctrine of Scripture. Um, we see God act. We hear God speak about the way He acts. 
and it is uh, very, very unique. There are uh, a couple things, just as we think about the Bible as the Word of God itself. The Bible as the Word, is it being the Word of God itself, like there are certain things we uh, know about it. And so when we say the Bible is the Word of God, and then there's certain things that we can start to state about it uh, by what we study in Scripture, by what we know in Scripture. And so if we have certain statements, I put a, seven of them here, and these are kind of primary, but seven seem like a good good. Good number for some reason to stop at. Uh, but these will not be unfamiliar uh, as we get into these. So the authority of Scripture would be your first blank there. The authority of Scripture. One of the things we believe about this being God's Word is that it is the very Word of God. What is it based on? What is the authority of Scripture? It is the very Word of God. Um, 2 Peter chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, let's turn over there. We're going to look at verses 20 and 21 here. So he says this, Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And you start to hear that at times you can hear Scripture and think, well, that's just a person. But we know within prophecy that there is very clearly like, this is God speaking. And it didn't come from my own interpretation. It didn't come from God himself. Um, and the, I mean, the Apostle Paul will say at other points, even if an angel were to come to you, like, don't listen to him unless it's coming <laughs> in accord with God's word itself. And you think of that, man, you see an angel, you would be like, that guy has some given authority just by <laughs> his presence and stature. But there's, there's a sense in which we say, this has more authority than that. And the authority is not based on interpretation. The authority is not based on what I know and how much <clears throat> sense I can make of it. <clears throat> and oftentimes we want to say, let me take it through the science rigors that we know. And I want to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is God's word. I want to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that this is trustworthy. And on some level, God is gracious in saying, yes, like run it through the rigors. Run it through all the tests, and it comes back time and time again, proving positive. But there is really a sense in which you, we receive this in the church, and we trust it and say, I believe. Like That's really the end, end statement on it. But, I mean, I've been encouraged to see, like, as you get into the study on text-critical issues, saying where, where is the original text found, or like... Uh, some of the modern scholarship and the liberal scholarship that will say that I don't believe the historicity of Jesus. Uh, it comes back again and again. And this, the, those debates tend to go away to a large part in our day and age. Why? Because like, they didn't have much grounding. And you're like, man, I'm kind of glad that <laughs> the scrutiny on Scripture seems to have faded into the background. There used to be conferences upon conferences um, that guys like N.T. Wright would go and defend the the authenticity of Scripture and the historicity of Jesus uh, for everything that we sometimes in the Reformed camp get frustrated with N.T. Wright about. He was a prominent figure who was defending 
the authority of the Bible. And so there's something about that guy that uh, we can really be thankful for, though it is God's word and it really doesn't need defending, but um, it is pretty neat to see as we look at our most recent history. So moving on, another one would be the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture. Second uh, Timothy 3.16 would be a text you could turn to here. Um, as we think about the inspiration of Scripture. Does someone want to read that? As we're turning there, uh, when you think of the inspiration of Scripture, many of you have studied these things before. How have you understood the inspiration of Scripture? When we think of God inspired this word, we say it is the word of God. Any thoughts? Yeah, there's, there's a content here, we believe, that it is directed and guided by God, still maintaining maybe some of the, the personalities and the ways that God has uniquely gifted different writers, but um, there is something about that that you can start to grab, and there's probably some tension to say this, God is not taking away our individual personalities as he uses us, but there's definitely like the hand of God behind this. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah, which we'll kind of get that, that language here in Second Timothy. Does someone want to read that, Second Timothy 3.16? We'll recite it even if you know it. All... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yep. Right, that is a, I mean, that, that is kind of a hallmark statement of Scripture that we really hold to foundationally in the church for the doctrine of Scripture. That we, what do we say this is? This, this verse uh, becomes very substantial for us. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, for righteousness. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And so there is a sense that we say, I understand like this is not necessarily dictation um, like it were like with uh, Moses and he's saying here's the tablets write down these exact words but there is a sense in which God has given us very clearly the words written down for the church for instruction and as you hear it even a verse earlier that this is able to make us wise for salvation that God is giving us what we need in the church for the things in the work of God for God's kingdom. So there is something very clearly given to us by God here, and we can hold to that and say, this is God's word, the inspiration of Scripture. This is coming not just from guys watching history, when you think of the gospel accounts or even the Mosaic account, this is not just watching history. Like God actually is directing the ways that they 
narrate and dictate this. So as we look at like even Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, like there's some differences. And we would say like that, the differences and the nuances that they're trying to piece together for the church, there is a God-given authority there to say, I want the church to see it this way. The way that, you know, Matthew saw it. And Matthew probably didn't even always know exactly how God was using him. He's like, this is just the way I see it. And the Holy Spirit is empowering him to do that. And so there is a true mystery about how, like, the way that people receive stuff and, and dictate it. Like, we, we trust this as the Word of God, and God is sovereignly overseeing this whole process. Yeah, you know, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they weren't written, like, immediately after. They're right. Right. Yeah, there's a clear, like, you look at the doctrine of Scripture, and you're just like, how do we still have this thing? <laughs> it is unique amongst historical documents. Like, there's nothing like it that has kept a document with this much historical value together. Like, I mean, the, the amount of original documents that we still have just, I mean, blows past any other do- document that is in existence, and you're like, this is just unusual <laughs> in general. And like there's like, you can look at it and be like, well, that's just amazing. Some really passionate guys. Or you could say, God was behind this. <laughs> and the unity amongst all these authors on, on thought and teaching is pretty unreal. So then we have <clears throat> the next two would kind of go together. So I'll, I'll bring them up together and we'll look at them individually. But the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture are part of the doctrine of Scripture. Being the Word of God. So first, the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, This becomes an incredibly important one when we're thinking about uh, what do we believe about God's Word. This was incredibly important for the the, uh, Chicago statements on inerrancy, obviously. They were honing in on this idea as being extremely important. And so inerrancy is saying, like, this thing is without error. Like, there are not errors in the middle of this Uh, inerrancy. So any other ways that you guys have thought about inerrancy, heard it talked about? There's much more to be said on this. Mm-hmm. Right. And there are certain spots in which, like, there are, um, you know, contradictions to some degree. And oftentimes, like, us in our modern scientific minds, we're like, ah, got it. It's not without error. And some of these are, you know, different ways that, you know, as our modern scientific minds have moved on, we've gotten more precise than they would tell stories, and they would often generalize, and we just have to be able to take texts the way they were meant to be written and say, like, this was accurate and true. It wasn't untrue. One of the things that they define within this statement, I'll just read it to you, um, on truth, they have two affirmations, or an affirmation, two denials, and one of the things they deny is somewhat helpful. I'll just read this. They say, we further deny, thinking of truth, 
<clears throat> that inerrancy is negated by bi- biblical phenomena such as the lack of modern technical precision, irregularities of grammar or spelling, observational descriptions of nature, the reporting of falsehoods, the use of hyperbole, round numbers, the topical arrangement of material, variant selections of material and parallel accounts, or use of free citations. So there's a sense in which we say, like, ah, he didn't cite it well, or he, like, kind of generalized maybe a citation from Isaiah, or you're like, ah, that's just, well, if I can't trust that, it's all, it's all bunk. But they're saying that there is an absolute truthfulness to Scripture, even with certain things like rounded numbers. And so uh, much more to study there, but just as, as a way to enter in there on what we're, what we're talking about. Uh, infallibility of Scripture. So this is a nuance talking about the infallibility gets into, um, will this lead you into error in its teaching? Will this lead you, is, is it fallible in what it's directing you towards? To say, you trust in God for all of your hope. Like, is it going to lead you into a place of wreck and ruin? You know, you train your kids in the way they should go, basically, in, in God's rules. Are they going to end up in wreck and ruin? And we're saying the Bible is infallible. If you trust in God, it will be good. And there's many other ways that you can get into that and say, it is trustworthy. And so many people, if they're going to give up one, <clears throat> will fall into liberal theology. If they abandon inerrancy and hold to infallibility, one of the things that we've seen in history is that usually if, if they do that, they, they start to get a little squishy there. And so they, this was one of the things that they started to identify. Why did they hone in on inerrancy? Um, because that was the key issue. Infallibility, many people who are liberal can say, I trust the teaching of Jesus generally. I just don't think it's all true. Like, so you kind of pick and choose little pieces. And so it might be a canon of Scripture within the canon, so I trust certain writings and not the whole. And so you kind of get this picture of infallibility is incredibly important, but not in and of itself. Uh, another one, the perspicuity of Scripture. That's a word you're probably only going to use if you read theology. And so I'm going to use it here because it's the only time I get to use that word. And so perspicuity, it's just the clarity of Scripture. Psalm 119, when we think of the unfolding of God's word, he says, the unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And as we looked at in um, just Second Timothy, like this is for salvation. It is sufficient for all you need for salvation. All you need in all of life. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, as we look at. Uh, the sufficiency of Scripture would go along with it. There's the clarity and the sufficiency to this that you don't need anything else. If God has left you wanting, it's, um, or He has not left you wanting, you can come to Scripture and say, everything I need is here. There are certainly other things I need uh, just to live life, brush your teeth, all that, but there is a sufficiency towards what, is it, what it is focused on, towards relationship with God, towards living in the world, understanding who I am, worldview things, and everything, every decision I'm going to make could be based on Scripture itself. So there is no lacking in Scripture. Uh, the necessity of Scripture, we can look at 2 Timothy 3.15-17, and again, and be reminded of this. He, he reminds <coughs> Timothy, the Apostle Paul, that is, he says, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writing, which you are able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ. Um, you need this. 
You need this. These things were making you wise. And turn back to them. All scriptures God breathed, profitable for teaching. And it makes you complete, equipped for every good work. We need scripture. Without it, it talks about it like we're in darkness. Wandering around, stumbling around. Nothing for us to hold on to. Um, so a couple th- notes, and we've kind of mentioned this in the positive, but what is Scripture not? And oftentimes I find myself kind of running into this more often than not, so I'm just going to highlight a couple things. Scripture is not a complete knowledge of God. This is the revelation of God or the world. Um, Leslie Newbegin, a missiologist, theologian, one of the things he said in a book that he wrote, uh, well, the, the title itself is helpful. It's called proper confidence. When, he, when you think about the way God revealed Scripture, it is not an absolute confidence. I know everything about everything. Oftentimes we act like that in the church, that I know all that God knows, but it is a proper confidence that I know everything He has given me with absolute confidence. And so there is a humility there that we say, I have received these things, but I get to stand on them. So he's, his argument is we need a proper confidence in the church. And so uh, oftentimes you see this throughout history that people have gotten out of bounds on this. Galileo, you'll know who he is, obviously, but one of the things that he got uh, in trouble with, if you've read this in history, it's always kind of startling, but you kind of recognize that we do this too. Um, He got called a heretic because he said the earth was not the center of the galaxy, but the sun was the center of the galaxy. And the church is like, no, God created all things, and we determined that the, that the earth was the center of the galaxy. So therefore, you're a heretic. You're against Genesis. And eventually, they're like, well, maybe let's go back and look at Scripture again. And they did, and like, well, I guess it doesn't necessarily say that the earth is the center of the galaxy. And so, I, you know, you, you see the way that you can easily move to that. And then their cultural moment, I don't think it was like a, well, duh. It was like they'd never seen a telescope. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they're like, Science has the ability to do something for us. So science is not going to ever overturn the teaching of Scripture, but that is not to say that science can't aid in our understanding of Scripture or even draw us back to Scripture to say, what does it really teach? So something for us to learn there. Another thing that Scripture is not, it's not completely accurate in my favorite translation. And so there's a sense that you have translations of the Bible, and in Westminster, one of the things they say, it's, It is inerrant and unfallible in its original manuscripts, very intentionally, because translation is an interpretive work. It is translatable. It should be translated. Scripture talks of this, that it must be made apparent to those who are receiving it. But uh, that process is, you know, there's error in translation. You read some bad translations, like, yeah, there's some errors there. And in America, we have extremely good translations, but it doesn't mean they're without error. But some... Uh, ways of thinking about it, there's kind of the more formal translations that are trying to get more of the exact wording, and there's others that are trying to get the sense, the more formal to the more functional. King James Version on the more formal side, NASB, ESV, NIV kind of right in the middle over to the message or a New Living Translation on the other side. And one of the things to remind ourselves is it doesn't mean one is evil, one is good, but there's interpretation in all of them. So even as we come to our ESV, we shouldn't say that this is without any error. We say, I trust this scholarship there a lot more than I trust the message. One, because it's one guy. And it's not to say Eugene Peterson was not 
extremely brilliant. I'm like, he, if he was a guy you could take Greek classes from, I would do it. <laughs> he was still here. So I, I trust him to interpret Greek, but there is more scholarship associated with the other, and you're not trusting his interpretation as much. Now, the other thing we just have to identify, it's not completely clear to everyone who reads it. And so you think of Scripture in that sense. Sometimes we just assume, well, just read it. Like, <laughs> it's going to make sense. And yet, this is something that the Spirit has to make clear to them at times. You get into it, and uh, it, it's not just going to make sense right away. It is the perspicuity of Scripture. You have everything you need there to come to faith, but it doesn't mean everyone's just going to make sense of it. A couple things on, uh, just really quickly, the errant teachings of Scripture, as we think about this, uh, we would think, well, I only need the New Testament. This is something that has emerged over time. Another thing is that it's just helpful. It's not authoritative. Those would be out of line with our doctrine. Uh, thirdly, just certain books or teachings that are authoritative. Paul's teachings are best. Jesus' teachings are best. Heresies came out of these types of thinking. Um, maybe we just remove prom- problem texts. So Thomas Jefferson did this. They got the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Just kind of <laughs> got every, everything that was inconvenient out of the way. Uh, I saw this video of a homosexual kid, really sad really when you think about it, but he's getting through this and he's trying to make sense of his worldview with the Bible and it just doesn't work. And so he's like going to Leviticus and he finds the problem text and he just rips it out. And you're just like, the temptation is real, but that is a wrong view of Scripture, that that could actually be possible. Um, so when we think of why do we need the Bible, this will be something we'll close on here. Why do we need the Bible? A couple things that I see here. Firstly, this is along with John Calvin. It is primarily to know God, to know who he is. We don't have the ability to know him sufficiently just by general revelation. We have to know who he is as he has revealed himself, and we have to trust that. We also know that I am a fool apart from Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul recognizes this. I am a fool. Verse 18 to 31. I am a fool. I have no understanding apart from Scripture. The Psalms talk about this. That it helps me to grow in understanding. It is only Christ and the knowledge that comes from Him. I couldn't know my sin. I couldn't understand righteousness. I could not know how to handle sex, money, wealth, prosperity. Like you look at the world and there's no way that you can make it through those types of topics apart from the wisdom of God's word. I have no concept of God's plan of redemption. I don't know where things came from, the origin of things. I have no sense of what I should do in the world. No understanding of God's grace. You think of the importance of scripture here for us in life and living and it is foundational for us. So there is a certain necessity to God's word for us. Any just last thoughts when you think about Scripture? This is a topic we could go on and on. I wish we had three or four sessions on this, but we're going to try and pull this together. And I'll send you with a couple of resources as you head out. Hmm. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah, there's, I mean, God himself orders and gives kind of, like when you think of the shalom of God's kingdom, the peace of God's kingdom, it only comes under the right rule of the way God speaks and acts and directs us. And that is a, a good place to live. That is the best place to live. So when we think about the Bible, something we can bring this back, what is it? Scripture is the word of God. As a doctrinal statement. It is the word of God. And it carries all of the things we just looked at with it to say it's authoritative, it is inerrant, infallible, trustworthy, essential, necessary. I mean, all these things that we looked at, we say it is the word of God and it means all of these things. And I can stand on that because it's been given to me. That I know these things. So a couple things as you head out this, you're thinking about this. One, this is a book you could buy. This is Explaining Biblical Inerrancy. This is a commentary on that Chicago statement. Another one, this is called Words of Life by Timothy Ward. And this is just an examination of the doctrine of Scripture. It's a more academic one, but this is extremely good. And so he's just talking about like God's Word is not dead. Like this is God lived out. So really rich, robust there. This is one we're looking at in discipleship this year with the men and women. Journey into God's word as you think about like what is God's word? How do we study it? This is very, very good. Uh, Just as an intro on exegesis and kind of hermeneutics. Um, This one is extremely helpful when people are skeptical about scripture and understanding where did this come from? This is a short little one by Nine Marks, Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert. And so this is one I would highly recommend. It's accessible and easy to read. So a couple things when you're thinking just about the doctrine of scripture, how do I trust it? How do I understand it? How do I view it? A couple good resources here. And there's also those doctrine books I'd mentioned, a couple of them in the bookstore. So let me close with prayer and we'll end this morning. Father God, I do thank you just for the the richness of your word, that we can look to your word and know that this is the very words that you have given to us for salvation. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your word, to love your word, to cherish it, and to be 